A couple weeks ago, Nick Ferguson forwarded an email to me. I, I get a number of those throughout the course of every week and always appreciate it. I find all kinds of interesting things in those forwards and a lot of things that will cause my mind to go different places. And that's what happened with this one that Nick sent to me. The funny part about that is it was full of useless trivia. That's exactly what it was. Nick sent me a, an email full of useless trivia, but boy, it intrigued my mind. That it was based on some sayings that I have known for a long time, and then it gave the backstory to those sayings. So as I was reading through them, I thought, well, I, th- I thought I knew where this came from. I thought I understood where it originated from, but I was wrong. I am here to tell you, wrong. Let me share just a, a few of them with you. The first one originated during World War II. The British fighter planes, when they were getting loaded with all of their munitions and then sent out on the missions that they had in front of them, would have a 27-foot-long belt of ammunition placed in each one of their machine guns. Then they would have bombs loaded as well. They would go out and drop their ordnance, and then they would end up in a lot of dogfights, and they would use up that ammunition, or on strafing runs on the ground, they would use up that ammunition. When they came back and landed, if they had shot every one of the rounds that they had been given, now remember that was 27 feet, it was nine yards long, it was said that they had shot up all nine yards. The whole nine yards was used. For the longest time, I believe that that was a golf expression because when I get on the tee box, my drive goes about nine yards. So I thought that's where it came from. That's not it. That's the history behind it. He shot up the whole nine yards, used the whole nine yards. Here's another one for you, also out of the the British kingdom. In the early days of the English language or the old English, the word for spider was cob. Today, we refer to a spider's web as a cobweb. That's why. That's where it comes from. Now, I'd never spent much time thinking about that. I can honestly tell you, never lost one moment's sleep thinking about why do we call that a cobweb instead of a spider's web? But that's where it comes from. Here's the one that really intrigued me. This one comes out of the Old West. When gunfighters or gamblers would go into a saloon and play cards, a lot of times those games would already be going. and They would sit down and join the game. The dealer was pretty obvious. He was the one dealing the cards. Well, he would deal everybody their round or their hand of cards, and they would play out that hand. When the time came for a dealer to change, for them to pass the cards on to somebody else, they would always do it by passing on not only the cards, but a little knife that sat in front of them. The knife would signify to everybody that joined the game who the dealer was. If the hand was already in play, the knife sitting in front of that person would say, this is the person that is dealing. Now, it worked out really well because in those days, everybody carried a little jackknife in their pocket. In fact, today, people still carry pocket knives. They've been around for a long time. Both of my grandfathers carried pocket knives. My dad carries a pocket knife. My father-in-law carries a pocket knife. My grandfathers gave me pocket knives when I was growing up. Every year at Christmas time, my brother and I could expect to get a pocket knife. I never really embraced the idea of carrying one. I don't know why. I just never have. But I know there's a lot of people that do. Let's just find out. How many guys in here are carrying a pocket knife right now? There's a whole bunch of people carrying knives because that's just what they've always done. Those knives look just like this. Just pull it out of your pocket. There it is. Well, they would sit it in front of them 
and then they would deal up the cards. When it was time for a new dealer, they would pass the deck and they would pass the knife. Most of those knives were made by the Buck Corporation. So when they would pass the knife, if the person sitting next to the dealer didn't want to deal, he would pass the cards on to the next person as well as the knife. The knife would pass on to the next individual, and if he decided he would deal, it was said that the buck stops here. And that's where that comes from. The buck knife stops here. Now, I just assumed that that had something to do with deer hunting. I don't know why. Shoot one and stops right here. You might be wondering to yourself, why in the world is Phil sharing all of this useless information with us? Well, there is a reason. I want to get to a place where we are sharing useful biblical information with you today. But after I read that email, I realized that there are a lot of different things, just like all of these things, that exist in the church that we believe we understand. And we believe that other people understand. Even as a preacher, a lot of times I'll mention things thinking, gosh, these folks have been in church for a long time. They know exactly what I'm talking about, only to find out they don't. Because we've taken for granted that there's a certain understanding when there is no understanding. So I decided that we'd spend a few weeks looking at some very familiar things within the church. But I want to do it in such a way that you will have great understanding of what those things are by the time we're done. A lot of that is based on a prayer from the Apostle Paul for a church that he just absolutely loved. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul loved this place. He really did. You can read about his time there in the book of Acts. He spent three years with the church in Ephesus, got it started, raised up some leaders for it. Then when it was time for him to move on, He had his young son in the faith, Timothy, come and lead that congregation. Paul just loved these people. He really did. And he preached up a storm anytime he was with them. But this is one of the prayers that he offered for this church that was so special to him. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that a great prayer? He is praying, after he's preached all these messages to him, he is praying that they will grasp how high and how deep, how wide and how long God's love is for them. Now, that's a prayer that we can offer for anybody. As a father, that is my heartfelt prayer for my children. I want them to understand how high and how deep, how wide and how long God's love is for them. As a husband, that's the prayer that I offer for my wife. I want her to grasp that and understand it, and she's grown up with it and loves the Lord. And so I know it's there, and and I know that she already does, but I always want to make sure that she understands that. And she prays the same for me, that we never forget it. 
As a preacher, teacher, that's the prayer that I offer when I write a message. I want people to understand how high and how deep, how wide and how long God's love is for us. And as a pastor, that's my prayer for you. I want you to grasp the same things. I want you to understand that the way the Apostle Paul wanted this church in Ephesus to understand that. And he preached accordingly. There are symbols within modern Christianity that show us the answers to that, how high and how deep, how wide and how long God's love is for us. But if we don't think about them enough or we don't think about them in the right way, we can lose their significance. So this morning, I want to show you one of those. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. You ever been to a pep rally, high school or college pep rally? Most of us have. Maybe when you were in high school, you went to one or two of them before a football game. Maybe you went to every one of them. Neil Fuller sitting here with us. Neil's been to all the high school football pep rallies, and he's been to college football pep rallies because his son plays college ball. Neil knows all about pep rallies. Well, you know what they're like. You bring all the players of your team out onto the field. Maybe there's a big bonfire going and Or in our world, there's chainsaws that are roaring, and we get ourselves worked up into a frenzy, convincing ourselves and our team and the entire crowd that on Friday night, we will come out of this victorious. We will be the winners. We've already got this thing locked up. The other team that's coming, just a bunch of losers. They came as losers. They're going home as losers. That's the point of the pep rally. We get everybody really excited. We don't just do that with high school and college sports. We do it other ways as well. We do it on the nights before we're going hunting. During hunting season, we have our own forms of pep rallies. Maybe you get together with the people that you're going to be hunting with and you start telling stories of past years and you make your plans of what ridge line you're going to hunt and you start declaring the animals already dead. They just don't know it. We're coming after them, and they are going to fall. It's your own pep rally. I know I get excited that way the night before the season opens. I'm excited. I'm jacked up. I'm ready. Ah, We're going to go get them. That's a pep rally. Do you know that Jesus had one of those? It's tucked away in the Bible. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to the Gospel of John. Actually, we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 19, verse 28. This is a pep rally for Jesus. Verse 28 of chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied up there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Now let's stop there for just a second. I want you to understand that these two communities sit on the backside of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is right outside the city of Jerusalem. If you are standing on the top of the Mount of Olives and you are going to make a descent down into the city of Jerusalem through the east gate, the lion's gate, it would be a quarter of a mile to a half mile. We kind of get it in our minds that this was a long processional. It wasn't. 
At most, it was about a half mile. We have walked from the top of the Mount of Olives down through the East Gate, the Lion's Gate of the city of Jerusalem, as a few of you have as well. It is really quite spectacular, but it's not that far. It's not that long. So Jesus is now sitting on this colt on the top of the Mount of Olives. The coats have been placed on the colt and all kinds of other disciples, believers in Jesus, people that had said, this man is who he says he is, have taken off their coats and they have put them on the ground in front of him. And he is riding down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, just in the midst of a pep rally. Listen to what they're saying. Saying. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now that's a pep rally. If the people don't sing, the stones will sing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Each side of the road is lined with believers. Each side of the road is lined with disciples, and they're all saying the same thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The only people that weren't a part of this pep rally were the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were never going to buy into who Jesus was in the first place. They had their own agenda, so they became somewhat argumentative. Maybe you've seen that at pep rallies, where you're convincing everybody that you're about to have the victory, and somebody says, I don't think it's going to be that easy. That's the Pharisees. This isn't going to work. So they were skeptical, and They brought accusation against Jesus. They went so far as to say, hey, why don't you guys just calm down? Why don't you settle down all these people, Jesus? And that's when the Lord says, boy, if they don't sing, the rocks will. The rocks will cry out. That's a pep rally. You might ask yourself, and it's a good question, what were they celebrating? What were they so excited about? Well, here's the answer. It's reconciliation. They were about to experience reconciliation. I'm sure many of you remember that when God created mankind, he placed Adam inside of a garden, the Garden of Eden. Eve was created inside that garden. The two of them were designed to live there forever. That was God's plan. When he placed them in the garden, the garden was supposed to live or to exist right up to today. It sits right at the crux of the Tigris and the Euphrates River and all implication says that the garden would have spread all across the globe to support all of mankind. That was God's plan. His plan was that you would live there as well. But Adam and Eve chose their own plan. You see, God gave them a mechanism just like he has given you a mechanism called free will. The double-edged sword of free will is this. That if they choose to worship God and be obedient to Him, then free will works the way it's supposed to. But in order for it to work, God has to give the opposite opportunity. In order for free will to work, God has to give us the ability to choose Him or to reject Him. In this particular case, they chose the second option. Their own plan. Their own path. Even though God had designed the garden to do this extremely miraculous, wonderful thing, they chose their own plan. That's how free will works. A lot of times we will pray about things that are happening in our lives that are determined by other people. 
And when we pray, we will ask God to intervene, which when we pray that, what we mean in our flesh, in our own selfishness, is God, make them do what I want them to do. God, make them do things the way I believe they should do them. God, make them respond to my needs, my wants, my desires, the way I want them to. And do you know what it would take for God to do that? He would have to remove free will from them. And God does not do that. When other people's actions determine some of the outcome of your life, it's because they have free will. And a lot of times we get upset with God about it, but imagine what it was like for him. Imagine what it is like for him every time somebody chooses a different path where God could have reached down and said, you're going to do what I want you to do, but because I have given you this mechanism of free will, I will allow you to do this even though it is very hurtful to me. That's the double-edged sword of free will. And it got Adam and Eve in trouble and we are all still living the consequences of their choices. The Bible says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And because sin entered the world through him, we're still dealing with the consequences of his choices. God wanted to be with us forever. God wanted to walk with us and talk with us and see us face to face, just like he did Adam and Eve. That's always been his intention. He wants fellowship with his children, with his creation. And he had to provide a way for that to happen. That way was his son. Jesus Christ is the way it was going to happen. So when they were celebrating in the, the triumphal entry as they were coming into Jerusalem, that's exactly what they were celebrating. Reconciliation. The bringing back together of God and his children. What a good celebration. The communion of the garden was fantastic, but I would offer to you that the communion today is even better because of the love that God had to demonstrate through his son, Jesus Christ. It's pretty remarkable. The problem for all of the disciples and all the Jews that were lining the side of the road, the non-Pharisees, was they had it in their minds that when Jesus reconciled them, he would do it through military conquest. They believed that he would ascend to a throne and they would be given their rightful place again and they would be mighty conquerors because he was a mighty conqueror. They didn't realize that it would take a whole different look. That look began with Judas in his betrayal. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If you've been in the church very long at all, you know how that worked. 30 pieces of silver is all it took for him to betray him. And his betrayal then bled over to every one of the other disciples with the possible exception of John. All the others just deserted him. Even the one that was closest to him, Peter, would deny who Jesus was three times. Can you imagine? Three times he would deny him. Judas gets top billing on the marquee for the betrayer of the Lord But every one of the other disciples did the same thing. They betrayed him. There are times that we try to make ourselves feel better in our faith by saying, well, at least we didn't do what Judas did. Are you sure? It's really easy for us to point fingers at him. But remember this, anytime you point a finger, there are three others pointing back at you. And so as as much as we can find solace and comfort in thinking, well, I didn't betray Jesus the way Judas did, you ever sold him out? Have you ever denied who Jesus was? That's not the point of the message. I just, I want you to understand the depth of the betrayal. Everything began to snowball after that point, and it began to gain a lot of momentum. Jesus was ushered into a kangaroo court of sorts. It was a mock trial. Finally, it boiled down to just one question. Who do you say you are? The people are saying that you're calling yourself the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And 
Jesus would respond to that question, it is as you say it is. And then he actually said, my throne is next to my father's in heaven. I'll sit down at his right side. From that point forward, everything just continued to increase, particularly the persecution of the Savior. Once he made that declaration, there was no going back. The course was set. We all know that. If you've read the New Testament, you know it and you're convinced of it. There was no going back. Not that Jesus ever would have anyway. So they put a purple robe on him to mock his claim to royalty. They built a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Some of those thorns were at least this long. When they put it on his head, they beat it down into his scalp and those thorns would actually touch his skull and blood began to run down his face and The whole time with the purple robe and the crown of thorns, they hurled heinous insults at him. The Bible says they spit on him and they mocked him. You may have been insulted at different times of your life, but it was nothing, nothing even close to what Jesus had to endure as he was walking the streets with that robe on and even carrying his own cross. So then they decided to take it up another notch and they tied him to a post out in the middle of the city square where they flogged him. Flogging was a Roman means of torture. It involved a weapon called the cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails was a leather whip and at the end of the whip there were pieces of glass and metal woven into the leather. So literally when they would whip somebody with it, it would rip flesh off of their body. He was flogged out in the public square. His body just ripped open. And then it culminated with the sentence of death. This is what came to him as a result of his declaration that he was the king of Jews. He was the son of God. He would sit on the throne right next to the Lord. He was given this sentence of death and it would be carried out through the Roman means of the cross. He would be crucified. Now you know how this works. They drove nails through his hands. A lot of people believe that those nails went right through the hand, but they didn't. They went through the wrist because the wrist is stronger. The wrist would support the weight longer. They drove spikes and nails through his feet, and he would have to suspend himself on his feet and his hands. And if he wanted to take a breath, he'd push against those spikes and be able to get a breath and then sag back down on it and hang there. People would come to the crucifixions to watch. They wanted to see how long it would last. But you have to know this. The only relief from crucifixion was death. That's it. There is no historical record at all of anyone coming off of a cross alive. There was no partial crucifixion. There was no halfway to the job. When they crucified somebody, they left them there until they died. For some people, the wait was only a few minutes. For others, it might be an hour or two. And still for others, it could go on for days. The wait was always determined by the strength of the person and and their resolve to hang on to life. That cross becomes the literal illustration of Paul's prayer. How high and how deep, how wide and how long is the Father's love for us? It is illustrated no better way than the cross itself. We have one hanging on the wall over here. It's to scale, but it is not the real size. So let's answer Paul's question. How wide is the Father's love for us? It's about six feet. That's the length of the arm span of the average man. It's about six feet. How long is it? It's about 10 feet. Now, three feet of that is going to be buried in the ground, and we'll come to that in just a minute. 
The rest of it is given to support the height of a man. How deep is it? About 36 inches. That's how deep God's love goes. It would take around 36 inches to support the weight of a cross. So they would dig a hole 36 inches down and then they would drop the cross into it. That's how deep God's love is. And really how long? According to the Bible, six hours. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. How wide and and how deep and long and so on is God's love for us? Well, that's it. It's demonstrated by the cross. Jesus hung there for us, every one of us, individually. The interesting thing about crosses is this. They've gotten to a place now where they symbolize death, when in reality they should symbolize life. As we look at it, we can see the reconciliation that the Lord brought into the world by Jesus hanging on the cross, yet what most people see is death. Whether they see a cross on the side of the highway or whether they see a cross in a cemetery, they think death, folks think life. The cross brought life. It required death, but it brought life. You know how it works? For a number of people today, they believe that the cross is a symbol of God saving mankind, which is true, but to really understand the truth of that, you have to boil it way down. Here's the way the cross works. Yes, it saves mankind, but it saves mankind one person at a time. That's the way the kingdom of God is built, and that's the way the cross works. So when we look at it, we can think of Jesus hanging there, but when you think of Jesus hanging on the cross, you must, you must think of yourself at the foot of it. Because without thinking of the individual nature of the cross, you will lose the significance of it. The cross of Jesus Christ came to save mankind and to reconcile mankind one person at a time. And it is an individual choice that gets us to that point of reconciliation. This thing is amazing. It's amazing. We talk about the cross all the time. We hang them in our homes. We wear them around our necks. But how often do we really stop to think about what that cross means? It means life. And the way it really worked was through one of the names that Jesus was given. He had to live up to one specific name in order for this to work. Let me show it to you. Go with me now to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now go back with me to verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some translations say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That name, Lamb of God, has extreme significance when you think about the cross. That title, Lamb of God, means everything to us. Now, for some people, they're going to boil it down and think, okay, Lamb of God, there's some reasons that he had to be called that. Jesus was crucified during the week of Passover. 
So a lot of people are going to find themselves thinking about the Passover that's related to the Exodus. What that was, was this. One of the plagues was the death of the firstborn. That all happened during the Exodus. In order to avoid that plague, God said that the Hebrew people were to slaughter a lamb and put that lamb over the doorpost of their homes. And when the angel of death passed over, if that blood was there, they would pass right on over. So we would think, Lamb of God, he's the Passover lamb. All of the Jewish people of the Old Testament knew that atonement, the sacrifice for sins during that time, was made by the blood of a lamb or by the blood of a bull or by the blood of a goat. So we could easily minimize the Lamb of God as nothing more than just being the sacrifice. But if you minimize it, you will lose the significance of the sacrifice. I learned this this past week. I'd never heard this. I don't know how many sermons I have preached on the cross, on the Lamb of God. I don't know how many lessons I've taught, how many sermons I've heard, how many lessons I've heard, but I had never heard this. This comes from a sheep rancher. That's kind of hard for me to actually say because I think most ranches ought to have cattle on them. And it's hard for us to understand based on where we live, what domestic sheep are like. We have majestic animals around us. We have the bull elk, we have the moose, we have the mountain lion, we have the bear, we have goats, we have sheep, we have two different kinds of deer, all these different majestic animals, but none of them are even remotely close to the domestic sheep. Here's what this sheep rancher teaches. And again, I I just learned this this past week. The lamb is the only creature that is wired to not defend itself when cornered. It will actually surrender, willingly surrender, humbly surrender unto death if it is cornered by a predator. It will not defend itself. It will not fight its way out. It will just surrender unto death. And that's what Jesus did. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had to willingly surrender to the cross. For us. It culminated with him saying these words. This is a beautiful part of the crucifixion story. The last words of Jesus, it is finished. It's the last thing he said, it is finished. Now imagine if you were around the cross, around the foot of the cross. If you were there as a Roman, you were probably thinking when he said, it is finished, he's surrendering and we are done with Jesus. That's what those words mean. It is finished. We don't even have to think about him anymore. If you were a disciple around the foot of the cross, or maybe you were watching from a distance, and you heard Jesus say it is finished, more than likely you were thinking, we are finished. There is no place that we can hide. But when Jesus actually said those words, hanging from the cross, the Lamb of God hanging from the cross, when he said it is finished, here's what he meant. We are reconciled. They would find out three days later what those words meant. It is finished, but that's it. We are reconciled. Jesus paid the price, and it required a cross for that to happen. How high and how deep, how wide and how long is the Father's love for us? The size of a cross. It saved us, changed everything for us. It redeemed us, and it reconciled us. This means life, not death. And it means eternal life. When you look on a cross, don't ever forget that. It's a simple symbol that means God loved us that much. It is a symbol of His love and our eternal life. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, it is not an 
easy thing for us to say thank you for your death. In fact, at times it's very difficult for us. We feel selfish in it. But Lord, you've given us the grace to feel that way. Even to the point of permission that we can feel that way. Because as Paul would say, when we preach you and we preach you crucified, we're, we're preaching life. We are preaching hope. We are preaching a future. And that required this symbol. It required this cross. It required you going through things that make our flesh crawl and breaks our hearts. But Lord, you did it for us. And for that, we are very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.